Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 131? And if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one under the chairs in front of you. You can find Psalm 131 on page 502. This morning we wrap up our summer sermon series on the book of Psalms. And as I looked at all of the Psalms, one through nine, that uh, we'll end up covering this summer, I realized that uh, Steve Sage and David Noel and I each have already selected one Psalm of Ascent. Those are the 15 pilgrim songs sung by the Israelites as they went up to Jerusalem, ascended up to the mountain plateau that is the city of Jerusalem for their annual uh, pilgrimages, their annual feasts. And Psalm 131 is one more psalm of ascent on our way home as pilgrims to the new Jerusalem. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we're on the way, and sometimes we get lost, and sometimes we wonder if we'll ever get there, and sometimes we wonder whether getting there is going to be worth it. But Your Word makes it so clear, Lord, that You desire us to be home with You in Your presence. Wet our appetites for that ultimate, most glorious reality. And until then, give us strength for the journey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just this last week, uh, Ken Lunt, our executive director, shared with me that a new ministry was launching here at Grace Redeemer Church. It's called Romeo. No, we're not getting into the matchmaking business. No, we're not collecting Christian romance novelists. Romeo stands for Retired Old Men Eating Out. And if you get mail from AARP, you are warmly invited. If you don't, you just have to wait long enough and you'll make it there eventually. On the other side of the spectrum, you probably have noticed just trying to get from one place to another that here at Grace Redeemer Church, we got a whole lot of babies around here and more on the way. And whether you're a grandparent or a favorite auntie or you have babies in your household right now, you probably have a decent sense of this imagery in verse 2, weaning a child. But getting there to that result, weaning a baby, is an incredibly traumatic process. Arguably in second place on the list of life experiences that are traumatic after giving birth, not that I know anything about that, or passing a kidney stone for guys. I've heard that's right up there. Weaning a baby, I'd argue, is number two. What's going on? The baby wants mama. It's such a beautiful desire. The baby wants this flesh-on-flesh closeness, this unique of all intimacies at his mother's breast, being able to look into his mother's eyes and know that everything is perfect in the world. Milk is just at the right temperature. It's flowing at just the right rate. Dad 
when you're trying to wean your child, you offer your little person a plastic bottle filled with fake milk that is one degree off target, and you got rebellion on your hands. Baby's going to be hangry, and you're, the f- you're at fault. And here's what is the traumatic part for dads, not to make this equivalent at all to childbirth. I'm not going there. But dads, we don't have the equipment to solve the problem when necessary. It's traumatic. The imagery in verse 2, though, describes the calm after the storm. The bronco has been tamed. The the, uh, beast within is now a picture of quiet contentment. That's how David the psalmist is describing spiritual maturity, to be at rest. Getting there is the battle. It's the stuff of spiritual transformation that takes a lifetime because it involves a radical shift of your life's center of gravity. That's a, um, an idea that we're going to interact with this morning. It's a radical shift of your life's center of gravity. The wean child, for example, I believe this is what uh, David has in mind for us to kind of understand as an analogy in life. The wean child no longer looks to his mother as a means of satisfying his desires. He's able to be content in her presence and to love her for her own sake. In the same way, the maturing, on-the-way Christian, the believer in God, learns to love God for himself, not merely for what God can bring as a benefit to me. Life's center of gravity shifts from resting in self, ruled by desires, me, myself, and I want, and they've shifted to resting in God. And the first thing David says to describe this shift is pretty striking. He says this uh, under our first heading, things too wonderful. I'm not sure any of us could say this and, and be telling the truth, being honest with ourselves. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I imagine a King David much later in life being able to say this quite honestly because he's been humbled through failure, deep, personal, impacting the nation, public kind of failure. Age on its own also tends to have that effect on us. We realize, I'm not all I thought I was cracked up to be. I don't know half of what I thought I knew and what I do know uh, I'm not at all the expert in. Tamps down the arrogance, the haughtiness, the pride of life. And, and then here's the second thing King David says I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. That's striking because the king over the nation is privy to all matters, isn't he? What would you keep from the king? What would, what would be too wonderful for the king to pay attention to within the realm of his kingdom? This is the Lord's anointed ruler, chosen to be king over his chosen people. This is the singular man to whom God made promises that would last for eternity. You will have a descendant sitting on the throne of Israel, Second Samuel 7. This is the man from whose line will come the Messiah himself. What could be too great for King David to pay attention to? He has to be talking about matters that no human being has access to. No human being has the privilege of knowing. 
that uh, made me think this week of uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, things too wonderful, too marvelous, beyond my pay grade, beyond my security clearance. It's as if David is saying, you know, there are some things in life when we come up against it, we have to say with humility, none of my business, secret things, eternal things, heaven business that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit alone have the prerogative to figure out. Secret things, the, the motivation of God, the mind of God, what, what He is up to in working things out in our lives and working throughout human history in exercising His sovereign prerogative. None of my business, David says. He says something similar in Psalm 139, uh, a well-known psalm, uh, one page in my Bible uh, beyond where we are, and he says this, after thinking about the mind of God and the all-knowing, all-seeing eyes of God. This is what David says in Psalm 139, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. You think, you consider, you wrestle, and you hit a dead end beyond which is no trespassing, spiritually speaking. Your business is here. God's business is in to the unknown into the cloud. Just thinking about the mind of God gives King David a spiritual brain cramp. That's precisely what happens to the apostle Paul. In the book of Romans, he's laying out in in unbelievable magisterial fashion the plan of salvation. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he especially focuses on the sovereign prerogative of God. Who is going to question him? Can they potter, can they pottery say, can the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? There's no such um, kind of relationship between creature and creator, and Paul hits a dead end. The apostle, under the inspiration of the this, uh, of this Holy Spirit, learned as he is in all of the Old Testament Scriptures, throws up his hands, and all he can do is launch into praise and poetry to end Romans 1 through 11. Oh, the depth of of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has ever been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him for from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Turn the page. Next topic. There's nothing more to say. Things too wonderful for me to think about. Why is David's description of himself in verse 1 so very different from what our lives usually look like? For the same reason our lives don't look very much like verse 2. We'll call it quiet contentment and start, secondly, with focusing on enemies of quiet contentment. It's Labor Day Sunday, and uh, Many of us have an extra day off for this weekend tomorrow. Unfortunately, the downside of what that means is summer's over. No more lazy days at the beach or next to the pool. No more trips to look forward to, long weekends to plan. 
And it seems like part of the harsh reality of transitioning from summer to uh, the next season, part of it is the sudden onslaught of that alarm clock and the rushed breakfasts and the getting out the door that takes a lot longer than you think and you're late for school and work. And then there's soccer and rehearsal and grabbing a bite on the way home and homework uh, on top of that and then going to bed too late only to wake up exhausted and start it all over again. Instead of lives of quiet contentment, we have noisy lives that seem like they never have enough time and money and sleep. But the real enemies of quiet contentment, the real thieves of quiet contentment are not your school teacher. They're not your boss. They're not your job. They're not the traffic. They're not the homework. They're not the bills. Enemies of quiet contentment, I'll suggest this morning, start with self-sufficiency and worry. They go hand in hand. Self-sufficiency is the exact opposite of the picture of David's heart in verse 1. Self-sufficiency thinks too highly of self, inflates self, is a proud heart with haughty eyes. And worry is anxiety about the future, about the unknown, about how the bills are going to be uh, paid, how how a problem will get fixed, how long suffering will continue, and demanding to know before you let go. Gospels give us a picture of noisy, worrisome life versus a life of quiet contentment. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus and His disciples come to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to Him, verse 38 tells us. She and her sister Mary lived there. Martha immediately sets about um, putting on a spread, a dinner feast for Jesus and His disciples. She gets busy right away, planning, accomplishing, delegating, and where's Mary? Partner in crime, sitting at the feet of Jesus, doing nothing, She's listening. Mary, Mary, (laughs) there's dinner. Talk later. And don't we know Mary's and Martha's in our lives? More to the point, aren't we ourselves to some extent Martha and to some extent Mary in some proportion? Here's a sketch of Martha's in life. Martha's are always busy. Martha's love apps on your phone that keep to-do lists neatly organized so you know what you still need to do and what are done, what you need to shop for, and you go into the aisle and you have it all laid out, and um, what is coming up on the schedule the next day. Martha's feel great satisfaction when jobs are done. Boxes are checked. There's delight in just that little action or Uh, touching the screen and saying that is in the completed section. They find it hard to ignore the mundane because they're always responding to the urgent. And that makes it very difficult to get to the important because there's only so many hours in the day. Martha's are always commended as servants. They're always giving and doing and blessing others, but the cloud of the silver lining, if you will, the opposite, is that Martha is very often served with a tinge of resentment and bitterness when other people around them aren't pulling their weight. 
But Mary's different. Now, honestly, in the Gospel of Luke, Mary is purely commended by Jesus, and we don't really get a sense of her imbalance. But she's a sinner like everyone else, and so Mary's in life can very often be uh, focused too much on thinking and reflecting and being, and they don't get much done. But here, at least, Mary is simply commended by Jesus, partly because Jesus is only with them for a short amount of time. Mary sees what's most important, being in Jesus' presence, and nothing else, not even the hunger of all of their dinner guests, as um, uh, women who would be called to extend typical, overly generous Middle Eastern hospitality, not even the hunger of the dinner guests is more important than sitting at the feet of her Master and Lord and Savior. I think of real-life stories that are tragic where a family learns a loved one only has a few months to live. What's invariable about these stories, at least in a healthy family, is everything else gets put on hold because nothing else is more important. You stop planning for the graduation party that is nine months away. You stop worrying about the state of your investments and how your retirement fund is going to look when you turn a certain age. You stop worrying about how to finance this house project to renovate the kitchen and the bathroom in the master bedroom. All of that gets put on hold. Why? Because the most important thing that now is more easily put on the top of the list is being with. Mary gets this. Jesus is on His way to the cross, and nothing is more important than being with Him in His presence. It's not important what gets done or who does what. Jesus, uh, when He rebukes Martha in verse 41, says, you are worried and upset about many things. He's, He's not critiquing her for putting on a great spread. He's pointing underneath the issue that Martha can only see and pointing to the state of her heart. You're worried. You're upset about many things. Uh, why, why do I say it's, it's not about what gets done and who does what? Because you can be incredibly busy and at rest with quiet contentment. You can get a lot done. You can be a person who's always on the move, but you have this attitude. This is the healthy side of a Martha, where, you know what, at the end of the day, I might not get things done. I might have done it poorly, but I gave it my best, God, and your head hits the pillow and you sleep because you have a a conviction that I am not the one that needs to save this world. That's God's business. My line ends here, faithfulness. And I'm poor at some things, and I can make up for other things with hard work, but God, you're behind the wheel. You take over. I'll see you in the morning. You can be really busy while resting in quiet contentment. On the other hand, you can be a Mary sitting, listening, opening the Bible, reading and meditating all the time, and yet be anxious. Fail to trust, fail to give yourself over into the hands of a sovereign but perfectly loving Father. Neither profile is better than the other. On the outside, where's your heart is the question. The last verse of the account tells us, Jesus says this, Mary has chosen, literally, the good portion, verse 42. 
Mary has chosen the good portion. We find that idea all over the New Test, uh, all over the Bible, uh, including in the Old Testament. Sometimes we find that word itself, portion. What does that mean? Psalm 16 gives us a, an example. Psalm 16 says, Psalm 16 says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You alone. You don't have to have any other understanding of what the psalmist is saying to uh, the king of all kings. You alone are my portion. That's all I need. And Psalm 27 echoes uh, that idea without using the word portion when uh, David says, one thing I ask from the Lord, the, uh, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What's the best portion one can have? Being in the presence of your Creator in perfect fellowship. Quiet contentment, though, isn't just one good spiritual goal on the way. Quiet contentment is tied up with the very essence of God's salvation plan and the way He calls each of us to respond to His offer of forgiveness and freedom. Here's a picture again from the Old Testament. Isaiah the prophet says this in chapter 30, verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Why does the prophet rebuke the people of God? Because faced with enemies all around, they were looking to political power and to military strength among allied nations to protect them from um, a more powerful army. They were looking to human solutions. They were trusting in self, if you will, rather than uh, depending on their promise-keeping, mightier than any other king, God. Earlier in history, there was a different attitude. Second Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat is ruler of the southern part of Israel named Judah, and as two different countries are allied together, being, um, getting ready to attack Jerusalem, here's King Jehoshaphat's prayer to the Lord. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but, this is a different but, our eyes are on you. That last phrase is precisely a Psalm 131, verse 3, kind of quiet contentment. What's the key? It's learning to surrender, not to enemies that are attacking you, but surrendering to God Himself. Thirdly, uh, we'll call this surrendering the center. I've been listening to this podcast. Um, uh, one of our staff members um, gave me this tip and suggested that I listen. It's not a Christian ministry. Uh, they typically are looking at startup companies and profiling what they go through to, to make it. And they decided, um, the, the, the host, his name is Eric, the reporter, decided to profile a startup church, not understanding what a church plant really involves. And so he starts following this, this guy named AJ in Northeast Philadelphia as he's, as he's trying to make it as a church plant and asking all kinds of great questions as sort of an outsider who grew up going to church but drifted far away from God and hasn't been back since. And um, towards the end of the series, 
Eric decides to join the pastor on an all-day spiritual retreat to see what, you know, what happens on this kind of thing. And uh, Eric says in the car, he says, I don't know what to do for six hours. And the pastor says, well, uh, you have your notebook. Uh, I suggest you spend some time journaling. And um, here's a suggested structure. Write down under three headings, I want, I fear, I surrender. And Eric sort of gives his voiceover after the fact. He says, I want and I fear. I get that. There are categories in my non-church-going mind where I could put down I want, that's easy for anybody, and I fear, but I surrender. I don't even know where to begin with that. And the thought of… So, when AJ explains what he means by that, he says the thought of surrendering is incredibly intimidating. It's scary. It's threatening. That day, because of six hours of solitude, perhaps the Spirit was working on him, he said he started thinking for the first time in his life why he left church after moving away, and he's never been back since. And out of the blue, he says, he thought of um, an incident in his life that had happened years ago uh, in Rockaway Beach. He was walking on the shore, saw some person struggling um, in the water, and as a former lifeguard, decided to kick off his shoes and jump right in. What he didn't realize is that the riptide was incredibly powerful, and even with his swimming background, um, he and another woman who had jumped in started to go under. They locked arms, and he said, for the first time in his life, I thought, this is what it's like to die. Out of the blue, a stronger arm grips the other woman's wrist and tugs the two of them, he had flippers on, tugs the two of them over to a sandbar, they walk off. Uh, the rocks, and back onto the shore. And he says, Eric says, the host of this podcast says, that night I cried. I cried, overwhelmed, wrestling with the reality that I was only able to surrender to another person because my life depended on it. And as I listened to him describe it, interestingly, the podcast number five in this series stopped being about the church planter, and it ended up being about the host. I, uh, as I listened to him, I, I heard two reasons behind his grief, why he cried that night as a grown man overcome. Part number one was, I hate being dependent on another person. That's pride. That's haughty eyes. I was so helpless, I needed somebody else to save me. The second part of the grief was Godward. And he said, I, I was grieved because there's a part of me that wishes I could trust God completely, but I can't. And he was grieved at that. What's going on in Eric's heart? He hasn't been weaned from self's sovereign demands. He hasn't shifted the center of gravity in his life from self, me, myself, and I. I determine what's good. I produce meaning. I am self-sufficient to God Himself. I'm helpless and I put my hope in You, God. There was a phrase in, uh, I think, the last song we sung, you know, um, I, can't, I can't come up with it right now, but in weakness, I come before You, God, and surrender. The, the word surrender is not there, but it's the whole idea. You, you only come to God and surrender if you recognize how weak you really are. Otherwise, you think, I'm good. You know, I'll pray every now and then. I'll go to church. I'll help out in the name of God, but I'm good. I don't need you. Self-sufficiency. 
That's the enemy of quiet contentment always. In Eric's life, that shift that he can't quite make is a radical shift because it, it and it's a painful shift because it, it involves inevitably spiritual transformation. It involves a dying to self that's more like withdrawal from drug addiction than it is like losing a few pounds through diet and exercise. That kind of change is painful, yes, because it involves self-denial, but it's not a life-altering kind of shift of center of gravity. Dying to self is. Spiritual transformation is. It's painful because the self-protecting sinful human heart wants what it wants, and at the top of the want list is to be sovereign, to be in control, to be the Almighty. The irony of the picture of the weaned child, verse 2. Here's the irony of that picture that is such a beautiful picture, isn't it, of a child growing to the next phase of maturity. The irony is that the baby eventually finds comfort from her mother who is exactly the person who denied her what she most wanted in life. Do do, do you see the, the, the natural nature of growth it is not give what you whatever want and, and, and then you, you, you become someone better. It's, it's you don't know what's best for you, child. How unnatural would it be for a baby being weaned to say, you know what? No milk, no relationship. <laughs> you know, I'm going to find me another family. I'm out of here. You know, because what I want is milk from mama. How unnatural would that be? How, why is it any less unnatural for us when we don't get what we want from God, when He doesn't act the way we think God should act according to our definition, why is it any less unnatural for us to say, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm not going back to church. I've given. I've served. I've given time, and life hasn't worked out. I don't get my milk anymore. I'm moving on. Growth always requires that dying to self because Fast forward the button, weaning a child from her mother's milk suddenly becomes weaning a child from living at home when you send your firstborn off to college. And the meals aren't provided, and mommy's not saying, uh, do you, where's your assignment that you worked on last night? Is it in your backpack? And adversity comes inevitably, doesn't it? You run out of money, you wonder who your friends are. The existential adversity is very natural in in this phase of painful growth. Who am I? Do I believe these things because my parents told me I should believe them? Do I have these values because I've just sort of absorbed them from my parents and I've looked down at other people with different values and now I'm learning that people are actually nice people with opposite values? Who am I? And then when it's Godward because you don't get the grades you expected, and people don't love you like you deserve to be loved, and you're wondering, what am I doing here? Then the Godward questions that are natural to come are, is He still there? Is He listening anymore? Does God love me still? If your answers are no, because you can't accept your circumstances, it means you're prideful heart, opposite of verse 1, is still in control. Self is still the center of gravity of your life. And most often, 
what ends up happening, verse 2, is instead of quiet contentment, your life is filled with worry and anxiety and fear. Uh, Eric, the, the podcast host, said, I'd go home at night and wonder, what am I doing? What's this all about? With friends and a good job and food on the table, those questions nagged at him constantly. Why? Because he was still the center of gravity, you know? Don't look around. If if you're the center of the universe, you tell you what the purpose of your life is. You give you the answer that you're asking, right? But, But he couldn't. He realized that he didn't find what he was looking for. Instead of that picture, the king of all kings longs for you to come to him to trust His perfect Father's heart of love, evidenced by the giving of His own Son, who went to the cross to pay for your sin. Instead of the no, I will not surrender my life to you, God, Jesus surrendered His life to an unjust death to show you the path to life to stimulate in you the only life-giving, joy-producing response, which is to then surrender your life, body and soul, now and for eternity, in humble, dependent faith, so that you could say with Israel in verse 3, I put my hope in the Lord and in nothing else and in no one else, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord God, our confession is that we love being at the center. We love life orbiting around us. We hate it when we are weak, when we don't have the answer, when we're at a loss for what to do next. We don't like being dependent on other people. We don't easily accept grace because it seems like a handout and I want to earn it myself. Lord, forgive us those sins that all have to do with pride and arrogance and haughty eyes. And show us, Lord, that only leads to a life of anxiety and noise and ruin. But you, Lord Jesus, have shown us the way of surrender. And so by your Spirit in us, as you work the nourishing grace of the sacrament of the Lord's table. Give us power, give us courage to surrender to You because You are all things that we need and want and through faith have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.